What's the one political issue we're most worried about as a country? The answer might surprise you. It's distressing. It's really distressing for people. It's not Brexit, not security. My uh, fellows and members say that it's the worst that they've ever seen. Not schools, not immigration, and not the economy. Probably the term humanitarian crisis has some validity to it. In fact, six out of ten of us now think the NHS is one of the biggest issues facing Britain, the highest level of concern for 15 years. 12 hours in a &E. Yeah. I think there needs to be a huge debate about the NHS. But there's also another related issue grabbing our attention in recent years, and that's social care. Who cares for those who need assistance, from the elderly to people with disabilities to people with long-term illnesses? And how do we pay for it? One of the major problems that's perhaps worse this year is access to social care. So there are increasing numbers of patients who are fit enough to leave hospital medically, but there's nowhere for them to go. Many experts now say that you can't talk about one issue without the other. They say that the problem of the NHS and our social care system have become so intertwined that we need to deal with them at the same time. So that's exactly what we're having a go at here on the Weekly Economics Podcast. My name is Aisha Thomas-Smith, and this week we're talking about what comes next for the NHS and social care. Stay with us. So we've got a very exciting special guest with us today to talk all things NHS, Director of the Institute of Health and Society at Newcastle University, Alison Pollock. Hi, Alison. Hello. It's nice to have you with us. Nice to be here. And we're also joined by Sarah Lyle, who leads on the New Economics Foundation's social policy work. First time on with me as a host, Sarah. How are you feeling? Very good, thanks. Great to be on with such an amazing host, oh, Aisha. We haven't even started yet. You don't know what's in store. <laughs> um, so, and you also... For listeners, you might have heard him laughing at my jokes in the background or cringing, probably. I but always I, laugh. Always, always laugh, yeah. Laugh. The pity laughs. You, you but do. silently. Okay, you might have heard him silently sniggering in the background. But I'd like to also introduce our producer, James Shield, who's going to be chipping in this week, stepping in front of the mic, because as well as being a top podcast producer, he's a senior policy analyst at Macmillan Cancer Support. You sure you're going to be able to press the buttons and speak at the same time, James? I have no idea. So I, I think our listeners will be the judge as to whether this actually makes it to the internet. Let's see. Yeah. Let's see. So first up, we've got health and social care nerds in the house today. So we thought we'd kick off with our normal headline segment, specifically on the big health and social care stories that you might have missed recently. I'm calling this segment, Do You Remember? The song's not actually got Remember in the title, but I thought it worked anyway. <laughs> So, Alison, what has caught your eye in healthcare news recently? Well, I think there are a number, there's no end of stories for the NHS, but the really big story is the return to PFI of the 1990s, the Private Finance Initiative, under something called Project Phoenix. So what we're going to see with Project Phoenix is the government actually moving to close and sell off masses of hospitals, buildings and land, including Charing Cross, which was in the new pa newspapers a couple of days ago. And instead of that, they're going to sell all that off, liquidate our NHS, and um, start to enter into public-private partnerships. So this is a really worrying story, is Project Phoenix. And if you remember, the PFI of the 1990s and North, uh, 2000s was an absolute disaster. It, um, it's led to ruinous costs, um, astronomical costs, so that hospitals can no longer afford to pay their staff and pay for services, as well as pay for these service charges. 
Okay, so thanks for making sure that one doesn't slip through the net, Alison. Nice and jolly to start with. Um, Sarah, anything to report from social care? Well, the story that's still rolling on is the one about the U-turn on uh, Theresa May's dementia tax from the Tory manifesto. Um, that's still a massive story in social care because there's still a huge question mark around how we're going to fund the system. And so there's a big debate going on uh, about how do we fund the system without creating a lottery for who's going to have to pay huge care costs if, for example, they get something like dementia, which means having to pay a lot for your care over probably several years. Yeah, there's been a lot of talk about this dementia tax. Can you can you unpack a bit for us what it is? Yeah, so Aisha, this was the Conservative policy in the manifesto to pay for social care out of people's housing wealth. So people who have properties worth more than £100,000 would be expected to pay for their own social care using the value of their property. But the reason it was called a dementia tax was because people were pointing out that this was quite unfair because it would really only affect people who got something like dementia and therefore had really high cost, high, high cost care needs. Whereas somebody who um, had a different kind of illness, they might get all of their treatment paid for by the NHS. So while it was a bit like a wealth tax, it was a kind of wealth tax by lottery. Good to know. Thanks, Sarah. So, James, what has amused you in the last week? Well, there was a story that I thought just sort of illustrated the absurdity of the way that the NHS in England works in some ways. So there was a, a big contract tendered out. Um, it's the biggest contract that the NHS in England has ever put out to tender, £5.9 billion. And it's awarded the contract to itself. So it's just been through this big contracting process. There's all this legal advice that you have to go through, procurement law, all of that, just to get to the point of saying, actually, the NHS is pretty good at providing health services and should continue to do so in Manchester. So that's good. No, that sounds good. Is it bad? It's well, you have to think about the amount of waste that goes in, in oh, into going through that process. I see. Um, so on a £5.9 billion contract over 10 years, you want to be really careful about the way that you award that contract. So there will have been all sorts of processes to go through, potentially management consultants, lawyers to check with, just to get to the same conclusion that the NHS in the other nations of the UK has already reached. Well, that's not quite right, James. What you're talking about is commercial contracting. So this was very expensive commercial tendering. The other nations do not go through a commercial tendering process because one of the things that's happened is the NHS was abolished in, by the Health and Social Care Act of 2012. And it's now in England, only in England was it abolished, and it's now being dismantled and broken up and privatised. So that's the real story behind the commercial tendering that's going on that is not going on in any of the other countries, either in Northern Ireland, Wales or Scotland. Yeah, but I, I think I just meant that in, in those nations, they don't go through that process. So it's, you know, in effect, they are giving the NHS its own contracts because they don't even have contracts. They just... That's a really interesting story because it basically tells us what the situation that the NHS is in is in, in in England is that everything has to go out to contract. And mm-hmm. so if the NHS wants to deliver something, it basically has to win in its own competitive contracting process. Yeah, Is that right, Alison? Yes, that's a, a nice way of putting it. Absolutely. Because uh, as James and you have said, commercial contracting is really virtually compulsory. They have to employ very expensive lawyers Go, and, and also there's the threat of being sued if the private sector doesn't win the contract. So Virgin, for example, is currently suing the commissioning bodies for not having won the contract. So that's another danger. And we don't know if that danger is also around the corner in Manchester. Wow, things are heating up already. This is going to be an interesting episode. 
Okay, so thanks guys for chipping in with your headlines. We'll be back with Do You Remember next week. So, the big question for our episode today is what next for the NHS and social care? Cast your mind back over the past few months and we've heard reports of a humanitarian crisis in our NHS and funding crises in our social care system. Cyber attacks and a dementia tax, junior doctors on strike and creeping privatisation. There have been a lot of headlines about health and social care and they haven't been that cheerful. One word lots of politicians use when they talk about health and social care is unsustainable. Is it really true that we can't afford to care for an ageing population? And what do the problems facing the NHS teach us about the economics of public services? And with the NHS and our social care system high on the agenda throughout the election campaign, what does the surprise result mean for the future of them both? First of all, we're talking about the NHS and social care a lot in the same breath here. Are they the same thing? How are they connected? And are they economic issues? Sarah, what do you think? Well, I guess first off to explain what social care is. That'd be great. Um, it's the system that supports people who need help with independent living. So it might be someone coming to your home to help you prepare meals or get out of bed in the morning, personal care, hygiene, um, help with the laundry, that kind of stuff. But it also covers residential care. So that's care homes. So people who are no longer able to kind of maintain their independence in their own home will then be moved into care homes where I guess they're supported to, to live out independence in a different kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously there's huge debates there about whether there's, that's being done with real dignity. These two things, the NHS and, the so- and social care, are absolutely connected, as I'm sure Alison will agree. And actually, in the debate, they've been even more connected over the last year, I would say, where we've started to really recognise that if you don't have a good social care system, people can't leave hospital because they don't have anything to go into. So they might need that help and they then just can't, but if the if the local authority can't provide the social care, they can't go home. So you get these horrible stories about people being stuck in hospital, which is horrible at an individual level. And then it's creating all these problems for the NHS. Um, you know, that phrase bed blocking, basically mm-hmm. costing the NHS millions and billions because they're having to keep these hospital beds for people who really shouldn't have to be in hospital anymore. I think that's a really that's an excellent point, and I'd like to add a third strand, which is that of course social care is means tested and charged for, and NHS funded care is free at the point of delivery. But since the abolition of the NHS, the government's now moving to put a new system in place, where it wants to pool the budgets of both the health bodies and local authorities, and it's doing that through devolution mechanisms like Manchester or the what's called the Sustainability and Transformation Plans, STPs. And the problem with pooling budgets is it means there's a real blurring, there's a real ambiguity, because that, uh, as budgets are cut for the NHS, then increasingly um, these new bodies are going to redefine care that was once free at the point of delivery as social care or non-NHS funded health care. This is the other big tension in the whole debate about NHS and social care, the fact that it cannot be integrated because there are two different ways of funding it. I mean, just on that previous point about whether you know, is we're talking about healthcare on a on an economics podcast. So, so why is why is health an economic issue? I just think it's you know, it, at least in in England, health has been a kind of 
almost used as a kind of playground for different economic ideas over the past 30 years. So we've had privatization, private finance initiatives, the introduction of markets, and, and it makes up a big chunk of the economy. So something like one in 10 pounds spent in, in most countries around the world is spent on healthcare. In the US, it's more like one in five. Um, and you get all these kind of interesting ideas going around about kind of the role of the state in fixing market failure. And it's, you know, it is one of the big things that you can do when it comes to redistributing from the wealthiest to the poorest in a in a society is, is to provide universal health care. So I think it's important that we that we kind of treat it as an econ- economic issue. Okay, so going back to the stories that are doing the rounds about a crisis in health and social care, the government says that um, survival rates from diseases like cancer and heart disease have, have never been better. Is that right, James? It is true that survival rates for cancer are going up, survival rates for heart attacks are going up. But the the big thing to say about it is that the NHS has coped incredibly well under a massive amount of strain, like many public services have. And it's the staff, really, who've taken that strain. So the staff spend, if you ask most staff nurses, what time do you leave work? For the most part, they're leaving after their official finish time. They're giving more of themselves. They've, They've taken on what was a kind of real terms cut in their pay of about 15% since since 2010. As, as a patient, you would hope that you wouldn't notice the difference. As someone who's working in the NHS, they are starting to see it creak at, at the edges. But certainly patients will have noticed longer waiting times in A&E, longer waiting times for cancer, where one of the big waiting time targets hasn't been met for three years. And so it's true that some things continue to improve. And we've got the NHS staff to thank for that, but the but the strain is real and it's quite big. You know, as Sarah was saying on on social care particularly. But the government says that they're putting in record levels of funding. Is that true? Are there NHS cuts or not? Well, the first thing is that all the nations are dependent on the Westminster Treasury for their funding, so um, they can do their own thing. But within this, the budgets are allocated. But the most important thing is that actually the NHS. Uh, funding has fallen. So we've seen the largest sustained reduction in spending since 1951, and that's projected to go right through to 2020-21. And as a result of that, what you're now seeing is this big program for hospital and community service closures under this thing I called STPs. They're anticipated to make savings of £26 billion. And if you put that into context, All the hospitals and trusts around the country, the services, are facing severe financial difficulties. Um, There are more hospitals in deficit than ever before, and um, more than two-thirds are in serious financial difficulty, deficit. Now, there is no hospital in Wales or Scotland that's in deficit because we don't have the internal market and the market transactions. So there's no hospital going to the wall in the way that it is and threatened with closure in the way that they all are in England up and down the country. And the reason why the government can get away with this is not only is it reducing the spending, but it's actually um, abolished the duty to provide health services throughout England with the Health and Social Care Act. So it's a really dismal scenario. So you mentioned uh, privatisation there. Could you talk a bit more about that, what that actually means? Quite simply, when I talk about privatisation, I'm talking about two things. One is the privatisation of funding, where you cut the budgets and you force people to either pay out of pocket 
or they can't get their care and they have to take out private health insurance. So you're bringing in new funding streams. But the other part of privatization is what we've got now as a result of the Health and Social Care Act, where contracting is almost virtually compulsory, commercial contracting. So the money that once flowed into our hospitals and community services and mental health and primary care is now flowing out through commercial contracts to lawyers, to management consultants, to accountants, and to the private sector, big companies, American companies um, like United, uh, companies like Virgin, which never provided health care, but are now uh, competing and bidding for these companies suing the government when it doesn't get them. So they're the two ways to think about privatization. When the new forms of funding are brought in uh, and individuals have to pay for their care, and also privatization when large for-profit corporations um, are awarded commercial contracts. And of course, the result is as you divert money into these contracts and into these companies, there is less and less money for the real NHS hospitals and services that were there. And as a result, they go into deficit and the government then comes up with a closure plan. I mean, all, all of this is quite is quite worrying and I think as, as Alison says it, it, it comes about because of this sort of huge pressure on the NHS budget. It can be difficult to discern the difference between what, what different people say about NHS funding. So when the government says it's putting in a record level of funding it means it's putting in in absolute terms in terms of the number of pounds going into the NHS in England. But the way that we tend to compare the size of health services around the world is what percentage of your GDP, the, the size of your economy, do you put into health? And that's what's been going down. So it's, it's true that the absolute amount is going up, but as a share of our GDP, that's coming down. And it, and it can feel like a cut because the demand for healthcare goes up by some of the estimates of something like 4% a year. And over the past seven years, the NHS budget has gone up by something like 1% a year. And alongside that, the government has excluded all sorts of spending from the NHS budget. And so you get cuts to Health Education England, which trains doctors. You get cuts to Public Health England, which does all sorts of stuff about kind of tracking the spread of infectious diseases and smoking cessation and, and all sorts of things like that. And then those changes, even though they're changes to the Eng England budget, then have a knock-on effect in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. And of course, you've got population going up as well at the same yeah. time, and especially an ageing population. And all those issues that Alison's describing with devolved budgets and pooled budgets are really interesting. The whole issue of if you pool a budget, then you can move money around between the NHS and the social care system seamlessly and potentially make the NHS budget look like it's bigger than it really is or, or push things that used to be uh, fully funded, free at point of delivery into a social care system that isn't free at the point of delivery. Yeah. And has the social care budget been slashed as well? Yeah, it definitely has. So the social care funding comes through local authorities. And since 2010, well, 2010 to 2020, local authority budgets will have been cut by two thirds. So that's a huge cut. Mm -hmm. And obviously in each local authority, they decide how they spend their budget. So there's quite a big disparity between different areas in how much they've actually cut their adult social care budget. So in some areas, they've only cut it by 2%, but in some areas, they've cut it by more than a quarter since 2010. And they're looking like they're going to have to keep cutting it because even though there's this now, there's a 2% levy that you can put on council, council tax to raise extra money, the areas that need that money the most 
tend to be poorer areas that can't raise as much from that kind of tax. So there's still going to be massive cuts cuts to come as well. Mm. So I, I sort of had a question for, for Alison, really, which was you, you sometimes see stories about, um, you know, from the, from the kind of care home provider market or from companies that have got NHS contracts and they're, they're either kind of pulling out of those contracts or they're saying they can't make enough money from them. Is, is, is that true? Well, it's a, it's a mixed picture, but one of the problems is that narrative of um, the private uh, corporations not being able to, uh, you know, threatening to put residents out into the streets because they're saying that they're not being paid enough. Mm. These companies structure themselves to make themselves look like they're um, going into deficits. So they separate the property companies and the management from the services, and then they take out enormous loans to channel the money that they've got into paying the loans back to the parent companies in order to engage in tax avoidance strategies and to hide the amount of surplus they're actually making. So it's a much more complicated story. What you've got is um, a lot of these nursing residential care homes have gone into what uh, are called sale and leaseback arrangements. So they sell off the property arm and then they end up renting it back. So it's a really complicated story. And I don't think we should take for granted the narrative that we're being told that um, the private for-profit sector is not making enough money from looking after residential nursing homes. It's where that money's going. And the problem is that the government is not forcing the private sector to put its accounts out properly so we can actually track the flow of public money. And instead, it's being concealed in hundreds and hundreds of tiny sub-companies where you have all sorts of very complex arrangements so that the money circulates and is hidden uh, from from view. Yeah, absolutely, Alison, I really agree. Um, We need to be looking at both the funding of social care in the money that comes in from government or from people paying for care themselves, but also the financing, which is the stuff you're talking about, about large amounts of private investment going into social care but expecting a very high return on that investment and so we did some calculations around the extra two billion pounds that was was promised by the chancellor in the spring budget to go into the social care system and we calculated that if all of that went into the residential care sector that 115 million pounds worth of that would simply go straight back out to on debt repayments and to the private investors it's like a leaky bucket system the companies that you're describing the large chain providers which make up 20 percent of the residential care market are having to spend 29p in every pound on paying their private investors. So the the idea that the problem is only with the government not putting enough money in, which I agree is is part of the problem, isn't really true because there's also this leaky bucket. The message is follow the money. A a cheerful message. (laughs) A cheerful message. (laughs) Um, Thanks, Alison, Sarah and James for outlining what's, what's going on in health and social care for us at the moment. Um, As usual on the weekly economics podcast, there's lots of problems to deal with. So we want to put each of you on the spot in our final segment, Sliding Doors or The Butterfly Effect. We had a bit of a creative (laughs) clash there. So one of those two. Basically about alternative realities. Alternative realities, exactly. Okay, exactly. Nailed it. So we've got two questions for each of you and we'll go around and you can all, all have a bash. So question one is, given the recent general election result, what's coming next for health and social care over the next next couple of years? And the second question is, what would you hope would come next for health and social care over the coming years? So we're hoping to end on something positive today. James, you want to kick off? Yeah, so so what I think will happen is 
it's not likely that there'll be any big changes to health and social care in, in England. The government had planned to put some sort of social care legislation or, or green paper forward. That seems, given the, that we've got a hung parliament now, like it's, like it's probably not going to happen. There is some expectation that there might be more money for the, for the NHS, but I think it will be just about enough to keep it going as it is. There are some indications from Jeremy Hunt that there might be a small pay increase for NHS staff, but it's, it's unlikely to get their real wages, so accounting for, for inflation, back to where they were in, in 2010. So that's, that's what I think will happen. In terms of the, the kind of other sliding doors situation of, of what should happen, I mean, let's, let's just actually commit to having the best health service in the world. Because it, it feels as though we've not quite been in that in that state for a while. You know, the NHS is just trying to make it through each winter. So what would that take? Well, I mean, on cancer, we've got a national cancer strategy that was written in 2015. That's ready, but it needs money behind it. It needs a workforce behind it. All the major party manifestos would have decreased the share of GDP spent on healthcare to different degrees. So maybe let's have a GDP target in the way that we do for international aid or, or defence. And I think, you know, we've got a Brexit is kind of present throughout throughout all areas of policy, but let's let's secure the rights of EU workers to stay in the NHS because the NHS is made up of people from all over the world. One of my first jobs in the NHS was at the National Spinal Injuries Centre, which was founded by a, a German refugee in 1944. So that's the sort of health service it should be. Social care, there are some ideas doing the rounds about having a national health and care service that seem to make sense to me. How you get from here to there, I don't know, but but that would be the kind of ambitious version of, of health policy. So, sounds quite sounds quite nice. I'd, I'd be down, <laughs> I'd be down with that. Sarah, what have you got for us? Um, okay, so your first scenario of kind of what's going to happen, I think social care is clearly going to be a massive battleground for all of the political parties. None of the parties have got a real mandate to deliver on it because of the Tories' policy being so criticised during the uh, the election campaign. So there might be scope for some kind of cross-party work on social care. I would hope that possibly with the green paper that, that James mentioned, that actually you could see a, a cross-party group coming together to look at potential solutions. But, you know, if nothing is done about the social care crisis, then we are just going to keep getting these continual stories in the papers and, you know, devastating effects on people um, of people being stuck in hospital and staff leaving the profession and people losing confidence in the system for the future. Now I know why you asked me to give an alternative scenario as well, because that sounds very depressing. So, um, yeah, what I would like to see happen is um, for us to all to be saying, actually, our social care system is way too important for us to leave it to chance to lottery and to to set up a stable funding and financing system which to pick up on James's point about a kind of national care service we could make some steps towards a national care service by bringing parts of social care into the NHS so quite obvious to bring in parts of nursing care that's currently delivered at home into a fully funded NHS and then we'd be able to, if, if you get this, the financing right, the, the funding right, then you're going to able, be able to deliver much higher quality care. So I'd love to see there being networks of smaller providers delivering really good care that makes gives people much more of a sense of control and dignity and meaning that these providers could even be kind of owned and controlled locally. Uh, and And then out of that, that you start to see staff being valued and for the social care profession to become one that people actually want to get into rather than one that people are leaving in droves. Again, quite a positive vision. (laughs) Alison, what have you got? 
So what I think is going to happen is we'll get a bit more money in for NH for small pay increases, as James said. But the big project, which is dismantling, privatizing and breaking up and selling off the NHS, is going to continue. At the same time, we'll have these new funding models, very like the US, which will bring together health and social care. But as more and more NHS care is cut, then it will be for their own care out of pocket or going into the private sector, which is what the government wants. It wants those that can afford to, to take out private health insurance. Uh, the scenario is equally gloomy for social care and, and it's going to get much worse as we become dependent on the wealth of local areas. So we're really going back to poor parishes, really. And the NHS, as you knew, know it, will become unrecognisable in many ways. But as for what can happen, well, we shouldn't give up hope. In 2015, we wrote a bill, the NHS bill, to reinstate the NHS. And if you go onto the website, www.nhsbill2015.com, you can find out all about it. The only hope for reinstating your NHS and having a sensible national health and social care service, because that's what we need, a national health and social care service that's free at the point of delivery and need and that's properly planned and with an end to the internal market, the external market, and private contracting. Now, that will take a political decision. It's absolutely affordable, but it's down to us as a nation what we actually want. And if we want to make that happen, then you have to get this bill, NHS bill, into Parliament again with massive cross-party support. So, as, as usual, as is quite quite frequent on the podcast, catastrophic, but we shouldn't lose hope. So, so not, not, yeah, not too bad. And uh, if everybody can go out and campaign for this bill and get your MPs to sign up for the NHS bill, nhsbill2015.com. Thank okay, you. Okay, <laughs> great. On it, yes, yep. Yeah, I'm going to get it tattooed on my head. <laughs> yeah. <All right. laughs> Thanks again to Alison, Sarah and James. So... If you've enjoyed this episode, please do think about leaving us a rating or a review in the Apple podcast app. It only takes a minute and it really helps bump us up in the charts, which helps other people discover the show. And make sure you're subscribed as well to the Weekly Economics Podcast in the app of your choice to get new episodes every week. The Weekly Economics Podcast is produced by James Shield and Hugh Jordan and brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. See you next week.